The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. This show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. 1966. Part 4. August through December. And a total of 30 American radio stations have banned the Beatles over alleged blasphemy. Brian and Derek are quick to issue a formal retraction. Records show the Beatles scoring more gold with six RIAA discs for the effort. Uh, now can we do the presentation that we were going to do slightly earlier from Alan J. Livingston, president of Capitol Records. Uh, when the boys come here, we always take advantage of the opportunity to present them with another gold record uh, because there's always one or more waiting for them. There's a little significance to this particular record in that uh, by receiving this, they will have received more gold records than any artist of any kind or type in the history of the Record Industry Association. So, uh, This is for a revolver. The revolver album scored solidly and hit number one on the Billboard chart in the U.S. In spite of Bible Belt objections. As time went on, John and the other Beatles spoke less and less publicly. Their press conferences often turned into reporters' shouting matches. John and Paul led a reporter into the house they were renting, sat down at the piano and answered questions about their relationship. In particular, how they approached songwriting. We normally approach it on the M1. <laughs> uh, and so we come up, turn past London, and when we get to Scarborough, we feel we're there. Uh, as, as they say. Well, I guess I asked for um, it. No, we just got a very informal approach. We've got no formula at all, you know, for writing yeah. songs. We just do it as it happens. Sometimes John can write a line of a song. He can come up and say... Things like that. He could say that. He could just immensely. say that. He could just say that to me, and I could say, What's "No, it? John." And uh, often I disagree with Paul and say, which has been done so many times, it killed it. But then sometimes, you know, we have a real row, and I say, <laughs> "Listen here, John." 
I don't think that's right. But uh, it depends, you know. Sometimes there's a line that he does, and then I do a line. Or sometimes John can write a whole song. Ah, yes, oh, he's a, he's a wonder when he gets going. Sometimes I can even do that. After completing two concerts in Chicago, the group now embarked on what would be their last tour. With 11 cities left to play and a total of 15 more concerts, the Beatles rolled on. With Beatlemania still strong and solid, the schedule one night is followed with Detroit, Cleveland. Crowds have gone berserk, and we've managed to get the Beatles in safely. And we, I'm sure, that whole show's going to stop now. The police couldn't control them; they broke the barriers. And very luckily, we managed to get the boys inside after a tremendous, tremendous riot here. The show in Cleveland would stop for about 20 minutes. The crowd finally returned to their seats, and the show resumed. Here they come, the Beatles again for a second time to do their concert here. The Stevie Cleveland Stadium and the crowd are roaring, you can hear them. And I do hope they're able to complete their whole concert. They're under control once more, they're back in their seats. They've been told that if they move out of their seats over the barrier, they will be stopping the whole concert here this evening. One week after the concert in Cleveland, Brian got personal about the Beatles, stating that Ringo, while the least creative, had no hang-ups about not being the equal of John and Paul. And that's why he was so good in the group. George, he felt, was the most insecure, with good reason, according to John Lennon. Paul and I really carved up the empire between us, you know, because we were the singers, you know. We were singers. George didn't even used to sing when we brought him into the group. He was a guitarist, you know. And for the first few years, he didn't even sing on stage. We maybe let him do one number, you know, like we would with Ringo, you know. And here he is, done, you know. Paul and I did all the singing, all the writing. George never wrote a song until, you know, much later. We couldn't exclude George once he, once he was... It was a, there was an embarrassing period where his songs weren't that good and nobody wanted to say anything, but we all worked on them like we did on Ringo's, you know. I mean, we put more work into those songs than we did on some of the our own stuff you know to try and make it sound like something you know you know so in, uh, there was he just wasn't in the same league for a long time that's not putting him down he just hadn't had the practice at writing that we had and the beatles roll on washington philadelphia toronto they also hold a news conference in toronto john may i ask you what is it in your estimation that can and does really inspire young people today I don't know, honestly. You know, I just know um, that what we're doing inspires them to a degree, but not not to inspire them to, to do anything else rather other than enjoy themselves. Well, what what you do excites them and makes them enjoy themselves. Yeah, what about inspiring them? To get inspired by people who talk honestly to them, and not people who <laughs> talk in take riddles. the long way round and talk in riddles. So they, I think, you know, if they believe us on some things, it's because. We can say it like they would think it, because we know we're exactly the same. And we don't pretend to be anything better than we are. You know. Is there a possibility that the Beatles someday will break up? Well, all the, everything's possible, you know. That's, there's no answer to that. We're obviously not going to go around holding hands forever. 
we've got to split up or progress. I mean, we might, you know, I can't, it, it might happen, you know. It's quite possible. With the Revolver album, are you trying to create trends? No, we, we, I don't think we ever try to establish trends. You know, we try to keep moving forward and do something different. And if in the meantime it starts trends, uh, you know, that's okay. But we never try consciously to start them. It's certainly original. Thank you. Boston. After the Boston concert, the Beatles boarded a plane on route to Tennessee. Concerned about their visit to the South, the Beatles could at least take comfort from the success of the tour so far. With only half their concerts over, they had already grossed over half a million dollars, and their latest single, Yellow Submarine, had sold a million. Is this your first trip south? No, no, we've been to Texas Happy. before. Uh-huh. Uh, where are you going when you leave here? Um, I'm, I'm Cincinnati. Cincinnati, that's it. Cincinnati, yeah. and yeah. how long are you going to be in the States? Uh, about two, two more weeks. Two more weeks, yes. Uh -huh. The group was scheduled to play Memphis. The homeland of the king, Elvis, at the Memphis Coliseum in Tennessee. There wasn't much grace around Graceland as the Southland Sicker sect stormed the show. Especially scary was the Memphis show on August 19th, where Ku Klux Klansmen picketed in full regalia. The local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan threw cherry bombs at the Beatles, still steaming over the supposedly sacrilegious statement. I didn't want to talk because I thought they'd kill me, you know, because they take things so seriously here, you know. I mean, they shoot you and then they realize that it wasn't that important. So, uh, I didn't want to go, but the 
Brian and Paul and the other Beatles persuaded me to cut me up. I was scared stiff, you know. And I look at this, a couple of press conferences on film where I'm sort of saying, well, what I really meant was uh, I wasn't condoning that we were bigger than Jesus. I was just saying, well, the, we, the fact is kids follow us and not Jesus. And I was going through all this sort of hypocrisy and terrified, you know. I was really scared. One night on a show in the South somewhere, somebody let off a, a firecracker while we were on stage and there had been threats to shooters. The clan were burning Beatle records outside and a lot of crew-cut kids were joining in with them. And somebody let off a firecracker and every one of us, I think it's on film, look at each other. Because each thought it was the other that had been shot. It was that bad, you know. I don't know how I did it. That's when I, that, that was the last talk. Well, at the moment, we're in the Greyhound bus, uh, just leaving the stadium in Memphis. And there's about, through looking out of the back of the bus where I'm sitting now, I can see the Coliseum disappearing into, into the background. There's about, so one, two, three, four, five police cars following us. Dust everywhere. We're on a dust track at the moment. And kids running by the side of the bus, getting in front of the bus, in back of the bus, around the police cars. No uh, bad happenings tonight. Uh, thank God for that. Except for one firecracker. And the Beatles roll on. Back in Ohio for a concert in Cincinnati. At the Beatles press conference, the questioning was friendly. The young people here were fan club officials and school magazine reporters. The only man to raise the religious issue was shouted down. What difference has all this round made to this tour, do you think? Any at all? Paul? Um, I don't think it's made much to it. It's made it more hectic. It's made all the press conferences mean a bit more. People said to us, you know, last time we came, all our answers were a bit flippant. And they said, why isn't it this time? But the thing is, the questions are a bit more serious this time. It hasn't affected any of the bookings. The bookings have been, uh, I mean, the, the people coming to the concerts have been the same, except for the first show in Memphis, which was a bit down, you know, but uh, so what? The disc jockey, Tommy Charles, who started this row off, has said that he won't play your records until you've grown up a little. How do you feel about that? Well, I don't mind if he never plays them again. You see, this is the thing, you know, everyone seems to think that when they hear us say things like this, that we're so childish, you know, I mean, you can't say things like that unless you're a silly little child. But and if he was grown up, he wouldn't have done the thing, because he only did it for a stunt anyway. So, I mean, who's he to say about growing up? Who is he? Who is this guy? Who is Just he? Who? Apart from that, it's great. Having a swinging tour. But is it possible just to say what you think all the time? What about 14-year-old teenagers who think you're absolutely marvellous and can't well, bear to be hurt? You see, we're, we're not, when we say anything like that, we don't say it uh, as a, uh, older people seem to think uh, to be offensive. We mean it, helpfully, you know, and if it's wrong what we say, okay, it's wrong and people can say, you know, you're wrong about that one. But in many cases, we believe it's right, you know, and we're quite serious about it. But do you mind being asked questions, for example, in America, people keep asking you questions about Vietnam. Does this seem useful? Well, I don't know. You know, if you can say that war's not good and a few people believe you, then it may be good. I don't know. You can't say it too much, though. That's the trouble. It seems a bit silly to be in America and for none of them to mention Vietnam as if nothing was happening. But why should they ask you about it? You're successful yeah, entertainment. That is why the thing. Because Americans always ask uh, showbiz people what they think. Well, they're sort of the British, you know. Showbiz, you know how it is. But I mean, you've just got to, you can't just keep quiet about anything that's going on in the world unless you're a monk. Sorry, monks, I didn't mean it. I meant actually. 
and the Beatles roll on. Over to St. Louis. Gigantic rocker at Shea Stadium. Hi, what's your name? Kathy Bartlett. Where are you from, Kathy? East Meadow, Long Island. And you came here to see the Beatles. You must be a Beatles fan. Yes, I am. Do you have all their records? Almost. Are you excited to be here? Yes. Uh, are you disappointed that not enough people have come out here to fill all the seats? Some of them are empty. You think the Beatles are not as popular as they once were? No. More popular? No. Uh, about what? They're less popular than they were months ago. Really? I bet there's another group you like better now than the Beatles. Is there? there is. Which one? Herman and the Hermits. Okay, thanks, Kathy. Hi, what's your name? Suzanne. And where are you from? Wontaw. Now, tell me the truth. Are you really a Beatles fan or are you here because it's the right thing to do? Uh -huh, I love the Beatles. I bet there's a group you like better now. No, I don't like any group better than the Beatles. Honestly, aren't the Beatles on their way out? I don't think so. I think they're still strong. Tell me, what do you feel when you hear the Beatles singing? Oh, I feel like I'm going to drop dead. <laughs> what, what thoughts run through your mind? I wish I could have one of them to myself. Which one? Oh, he's the only one who isn't married. Uh, would you settle for one of the others? Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you think you might do some screaming tonight? I'm going to lose my voice, I know I am, because I'm going to screech and cry so loud. Uh, could you give us a sample? Scream? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. All right, now where's the voice? <laughs> You're pretty brave to be out here with all these girls. Well, I'm just glad I'm not one of the Beatles. Don't you think this whole Beatle craze is sort of silly and strictly for girls? No, not really. I think they're very talented musicians and talented songwriters and excellent showmen. You like them? Yeah. How long do you think they can last? As long as they keep playing, they'll last. And writing songs and making pictures. Okay, thank you. Hello, what's your name? Fran. Where are you from, Fran? Brooklyn, Coney Island section. Tell me, when you hear a Beatles record, what thoughts run through your mind? Beauty, sheer beauty. The sounds are so mellow and sweet, and there's Paul and there's John, and there's Ringo and there's George, they're all singing. They're my second favorite group, really. Oh, really? What are your favorites? The animals, but they're breaking up. I always loved them, but the Beatles really started me off. If, you know, the Beatles bring joy into the world. It's the happiness. We forget our cares when we hear Beatle records. They're fun. Tell me this. How long do you think the Beatles can last? Well, I wish they'd last forever. They could bring happiness to everybody. But they're pretty much on their way out, aren't they? I don't really think so. Look at this. Tell me they're on their way out. And look at this. A lot of empty seats here tonight. Well, majority is filled. Look. Well, it looks like the bloom is off the Beatles. Last year, not an empty seat in Shea Stadium. This year, thousands, perhaps 15 or 20,000 empty seats in this arena that holds 56,000. Which means that not every 15-year-old in this area woke up this morning and came out to Shea Stadium. But the thousands that did made up an enthusiasm for their lack of numbers. Consider to be that Liverpool pain may be mainly on the wane. 
But if tonight's noise is any criterion, the Beatles' reign will end not with a whimper, but with a roar. like he's gonna have them sing about a submarine. We'll just turn off our recorder until he's ready to... Wow. Well, they sure are warmed up. <laughs> they do, they start off with rock and roll music. Like that one? I love it. And then they do, um, they do Babies in Black. Did they do Long Tall Sally? Yeah. Oh, oh. Oh. Uh, they only do two screamers. They do uh, rock and roll music at the beginning and Long Tall Sally at the end. And all oh. Yeah, this in uh, Labor Day when they came the first time they ended with Long Tall Sally. Oh. Which one do you like the most out of all the Beatles? I think John's sexy. You think he's sexy? Yeah. What do you think of George? I think he's he's very quiet, but oh, he's sexy too. He's very deep, George. Yeah, he's uh, he's quiet, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. And what about Ringo? No, I don't like Ringo. Would you say they're screaming more or less this time than last time? A lot less. A lot less, man. They used to break the microphone. <laughs> What? They used to charge the platform. They couldn't hold them back. There used to be too many to hold back. My sister went when they were at Forest Hills. She said she couldn't hear anything, but they were so loud. They're not popular as they were before. That's why they didn't scream as much. That's why you like them more. Tell me what's happening down there. A kid just jumped on the field and they can't get them off. all over the place. They can't stop them. If all these fans ever charge, they never hold them back. Everything was said as the Beatles approached the end of the 66 tour. A concert in Seattle. Another news conference in Seattle. Regards to songwriting, have you ever uh, attempted to or would you uh, attempt to write anything on your own without Paul or with another writer? Well, I've written many things without Paul before, you know, for years. We've always written together and separately. What about what to say another writer? Another writer I don't need, you know. The Beatles roll on. South to California and Los Angeles' Dodger Stadium. How I can see our career now, it's gone through, almost through a complete change. From when we first started in Germany, we were very much more popular with, with the lads than with the girls. And slowly we built up a following. We used to play good on stage. We used to, you know, we were really swung together in the old days. The more fame and that we got, the more people who came about to see us 
and it got into the time when there was just thousands of girls everywhere and everybody making a noise and so that nobody could hear us anyway so over the last two years nobody's heard us on stage so consequently our performances have deteriorated to such an extent now that you know really our stage shows are terrible but you know they can't hear it and we can't hear it that's why it's terrible which one's your favorite what do you like about him then north to san francisco and their last group appearance in the u.s candlestick park august 29th 1966 
thank you. And it's uh, it's a bit chilly. We'd like to do the next number now, which is a special request for all the wonderful backroom boys on this tour. Uh, the song is called I Wanna Be Your Man to Sing It. phenomenal actually it's much better all around from the point of view there's much more interest uh, and actually we're, pay we're playing to bigger audiences than we've ever played to uh, this probably might sound a bit odd because people have been saying you know things about diminishing popularity and so on but uh, all that you know one can go by is what, what uh, sort of attendances we're getting at the concerts and they're absolutely huge I think that by the time we leave here, the boys will have been seen by about 400,000 people. The last show of the band's third American tour. It comes from a tape Beatles press officer Tony Barrow made while standing in the wings. I carried a cassette recorder um, round on all these last tour dates, 65 and 66, to pick up where I could, as many interviews uh, as I could that took place in press conference situations and so forth, uh, largely to take them back home to let journalists and people uh, here in London hear them who hadn't been out on the tour, and to assemble all kinds of sort of, you know, post-tour press kits and, and whatever. So I used to have a, a tape recorder, and Paul said to me um, on the way into San Francisco, uh, you got your cassette recorder, have you? I said, yeah, sure, of course I have. So, tape tonight, will you? Record tonight. Um, and I knew what he meant because it was fairly common knowledge amongst the Beatles, although not beyond the Beatles, that this was to be the last concert tour and therefore tonight was to be the last concert that they would ever give. And, you know, it was a fairly tightish 30-35 minute um, performance, um, by no means their finest, and yet there were extra things in there. Um, just bits of pattern dialogue, as it were, uh, in between the, the, the songs that were particularly John and Paul, I noticed, put in things that they had never said before. It was kind of end of turn time in a way. Brian Epstein knew it was almost certainly the last performance. Feeling despondent, he said to his American public relations agent, Matt Weiss, what will I do now? What will happen to my life? Should I go back to school and learn something else? At some point during the return flight to London, George Harrison reportedly told Neil Aspinall, Now I know I'm no longer a Beatle. Another hint of things to come. Tony Barrow again. I, I also remember that same night when we all got back onto the chartered aircraft that, um, that was going to take us down the Californian coast, down to, to L.A. Um, the very first thing that George Harrison said as he sank back into his chair on the plane was, Well, that's it. I'm not a Beatle anymore. The sound was always bad and we'd just be joking to each other to keep ourselves amused and it was very impersonal and, and not only that, with so many police and kids and flying around, it was, it was really like, we, we got into a big political thing, you know, with all that Christ and Manila and things and at that time I just was so sick of it, I think we all were, it was like yeah. nervous wrecks getting flown around everywhere and press conferences everywhere we went, you know, it was just too much.
may return to London on August 31st. Very tiring, you know. You feel the Americans still love you? Oh, I think so, yeah. <laughs> what are you planning to do today? Sleep. Cynthia Lennon remembers. A day later, John arrived home, relieved that it was all over, and so exhausted that he slept for two whole days. says we had a good tour but it was all very tiring many times just sitting outside concert halls being collected by the local police to be taken to and just thinking i really don't want to go through with this you know let's we've got enough money let's take the money and run and let's go down to brighton george was a little more direct he said categorically that he would never perform again on stage it was sort of a slow process at first you know it was really nice to be booked on some place and know that the people were coming to because we'd had hit records and we started to make a bit of money and they came and 
and we always had new songs to promote and stuff but when we really got big it was we were got very bored with it because we had to do really you know we had to do she loves you and things and it was not bad at first but but then we, you know, we just got tired of it and we were trapped ourselves because we couldn't really play anything else. We didn't have time to do anything else other than our own songs. And it got all very boring for us. And then the concerts got, got bigger and bigger. John summed it up by saying, we've had enough of performing forever. I can't imagine any reason which would make us do any sort of tour again. We're all really tired. It does nothing for us anymore which is really unfair to the fans, we know, but we've got to think of ourselves. The touring days were over. The Beatles were ready to be listened to and not just screamed at, the way Ringo describes those early concerts. They didn't come to our shows to appreciate us for our music, because, um, as everyone says, it's like, you know, a dumb line everyone uses. I went to the concert and didn't hear anything. But we were out there to promote ourselves and the records and it didn't matter if they heard us or not everyone had a good time and i enjoyed them all screaming and dancing i didn't want them to sit there and appreciate me but so then they'd go and buy the records if they already hadn't got them you know so we were more a group that you come and look at and get crazy with it was the worst time and the best time in my life i mean the best time because we played a lot of good music and we had a lot of good times and the worst time because it's not touring is never a pleasure where it was like 24 hours a day with no break, with press and people fighting to get into your room, you know, yeah. climbing 25 stories of drain pipes, knocking on your window. I mean, it never stopped, and that was the, wasn't the good part of it. But the show wasn't that. I mean, no one ever complained about them. It was just that everything that went around us would have, if we'd have carried on, I, I personally would have gone insane. Cynthia Lennon. Relieved as all the boys were to stop touring and performing, they also found themselves at a bit of a loss. Of course, they would continue making records, but once they'd had a rest, what else were they going to do? Gradually, they started to move in different directions and develop their own interests. For Ringo, it was an opportunity to spend more time with his family. In those days, he was always the most family-oriented of the boys, and liked nothing better than chilling out at home with his wife and baby. Paul and George wanted to travel. Paul decided to journey across Africa with Jane, while George and Patty headed for India. Home again for the Beatles. John solos for a co-starring role as Gripweed, a soldier in How I Won the War. The Beatles had stopped touring, and although I didn't want to tour again, especially after being accused of crucifying Jesus, right. when all I'd made was a flippant remark, right. and having to stand with the clan outside and firecrackers going on inside, I couldn't take any more. But I still couldn't see any, what could I do, go into movies? That was the basic move. Right. And uh, Dick Lester offered me the part in this movie, which gave me time to think without going home. Cynthia Lennon. John accepted a part in a film called How I Won the War. He was attracted by the anti-war theme, and as he'd loved being involved in the two films the Beatles had made, he wondered if his future lay in that direction. It was his first opportunity to be a straight actor, and he was excited and nervous about it. Shooting was to take place in Germany and then Spain, in the seaside town of Almeria. He promised that Julian and I could join him there as soon as he'd settled into filming. We flew out a couple of weeks later to the villa he was renting with the actor Michael Crawford, his wife Gabrielle, their baby and the nanny. On September the 6th, 1966, John's beetle haircut disappeared and he was given small, round, national health granny glasses. 
Over the past few years, he had been trying to cope with contact lenses, at least in public. But on more than one occasion, fans had thrown jelly beans onto the stage, a custom that had been established after George had mentioned he liked them. One had hit John in the face and knocked out a lens, leaving him in considerable pain. Also, in those days, lenses were made of thick glass, and he found them uncomfortable. He loved the national health specs and decided to stick with them and give up his lenses. Thus, John's trademark look was born. When he started his first solo acting role in the movie How I Won the War. Based on a novel by a man named Patrick Ryan and scripted by Charles Wood, How I Won the War starred John in a supporting role as a British grunt named Private Gripweed of the third troop of the Fourth Musketeers. It was a part written especially for Lennon at Lester's direction. But more important to John, who was by that time publicly blasting America's involvement in Vietnam, How I Won the War took an anti-war stance. At the time, Lennon said, quote, I did the film because I believed in it. There never has been a war film that showed war as it really is. A man fighting in a battle doesn't see the whole thing. He never meets the enemy until the day a man comes round the corner and sticks a bayonet in him, and he can't quite believe it's happening. Ringo traveled to Spain. Cynthia Lennon remembers. I loved being in Spain and watching the filming, but the villa we were staying in was damp and tatty. When Maureen and Ringo flew out to join us for a holiday, it was the excuse we needed to find somewhere better. We searched out a vast villa with its own pool. We were told it had once been a convent. No sooner had we moved in than we discovered the place was haunted. Lights would keep going off. Objects would move mysteriously, and we all felt a strange presence. We planned a party to cheer the place up, but halfway through the evening the electricity was cut off and a huge storm blew up. As thunder and lightning raged outside, we lit dozens of candles in the huge main room. But although John had enjoyed the acting, he loathed learning lines and all the waiting around that's inevitable on film sets, he decided to stick with music. It was where his heart still lay, and he spent long hours in the attic studio composing new songs. I was glad he was being creative, but his drug-taking hadn't stopped, and too often he was lost to me. Still, I clung to the times when he was his old self, hoping that the real loving John would return. One morning at breakfast, he pointed out an article in the newspaper to me. It was about a Japanese artist, Yoko Ono, who had made a film that consisted of close-up shots of people's bottoms. Sin, you've got to look at this. It must be a joke. Christ, what next? She can't be serious. We laughed and shook our heads. Mad, John said. She must be off a rocker. I had to agree. We had no understanding at all of avant-garde art or conceptualism at that point, and the newspaper went into the bin. We didn't discuss Yoko Ono again. Let me take you. 
On September 20th, it's reported that George Harrison is in India studying sitar with Ravi Shankar and taking lessons in yoga. George first met Ravi Shankar in 1965 at a dinner in the home of the man who ran the Asian Music Center in London. He later went to George's house in Escher and gave him a quick sitar lesson and a private concert with the great tabla player Ala Rakar. It was like remarkable the first time I listened to it, which was a Ravi Shankar album. You know, it is technically the most amazing music ever. But when I listened to the music, even though intellectually I didn't understand it, I felt uh, within myself as though I knew it and just knew it back to front. Once again, McCartney is denying marriage plans with longtime love, actress Jane Asher. Ringo forms a construction firm called Bricky Building Company Limited, as Paul is off to score a film entitled The Family Way, starring good friend Haley Mills. On October 14th, it's reported that Paul McCartney is writing the musical score for a Haley Mills film, Wedlocked, or All in Good Time. The title was later changed to The Family Way. October 24th, Cardinal Cushing, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Boston, says he agrees. The Beatles are more popular than Jesus Christ. The fact is that the group is better known than Christianity throughout the world. On November the 9th, John visited the Indica Gallery in London to see a preview of an exhibition by Japanese artist Yoko Ono. They were introduced by gallery owner John Dunbar. It's a long story. Yoko had come... Maybe with a smash. Yeah. Had come to London, or had been invited to London, by some group of artists or something called Destruction in Art Symposium. They had some big thing going on in London. And she had a, an exhibition put on by that gallery. What was it called? John... Uh, John Indica Gallery. Indica Gallery, Marian Faithful's... John Dunbar. John Dunbar, Marian Faithful's ex-husband. Mm -hmm. I used to go down there occasionally. I'd been down to see things like Takis, who'd made these flashing lights and sold them for a fortune. You know, be garbage. But they sent me this pamphlet, or he called me, I don't know which, about this Japanese girl from New York was going to be in a bag, you know, doing this event. I said, well, what's an event? He said, it's like a happening, only it's an event. I thought, all right. Yeah, I thought, hmm, you know, sex. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's going to get in bags. I was all paranoid, saying, well, I don't want to get in a bag. I want to be the one that doesn't do it, you know, spoils what and watch. <laughs> so I went down, and it was quite funny because I had a chauffeur-driven SS Cooper Mini with black windows. You know, and the chauffeur was about eight foot tall, and the Mini drives up. A giant guy gets out and opens the door, and I go in. And it's the night before the, the opening. And I was in the basement. There was, you know, like a few nails on a stand and an apple on a stand, cosmic. <laughs> and uh, just these strange-looking objects just looked like found objects that had been painted white with little messages written on them. Just a few people in the gallery, and I was wandering around trying to look, not look like John Lennon. John Dunbar was sort of showing me around. I'm looking, thinking, mm -hmm. what? How much is that, you know? hundred pounds for a bag of nails? Are you kidding? 
Mm-hmm. How much is the apple? Two hundred pounds. Fresh I said, apple. Oh, fresh. Thanks yeah, a lot. Two hundred pound for a fresh apple. I said, I thought this is a con. What the hell is this? You know. I go downstairs and there's a few sort of. There must have been assistants, but I thought there was a, a minimal audience lying around on the floor. Anyway, but Dunbar's trying to hustle a bit because he thinks the millionaire Beatles are coming to buy. You know. So he introduces me to this strange-looking Japanese woman. Nothing's happening in the bags. I'm expecting an orgy <laughs> in a bag. Something's going to be happening in a bag, you know, psychedelic. And it's all quiet. And he introduces me to her. And I said, well, where's the sort of happening, the event? And she gives me a little card. And it just says, breathe on it. So I said, you mean like that? She says, yeah, that's it. She had a, um, a, f- a painting, which is a ladder and there's a painting on the ceiling with a, a spyglass hanging on a chain from it and you climb up the ladder and lift the spyglass and read a little word and it says yes so i'm looking for action you know and i see this thing called hammer and nail in it's a board with a chain and a hammer hanging on it and a bunch of nails at the bottom i said well can i hammer a nail in she says no so John Dunbar whisks her away. Like, this was before the opening, you know. Yeah. I didn't want anybody to touch anything. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So he takes from the corner and says, that's a millionaire. Well, you know who that is? She didn't no, know no, who she, I was. Yeah. He didn't explain anything. Well, really. what was he, he was just sort of trying to hint, hint, you know, with his eyes. Well, whatever. She came over and said, you can hammer one in for five shillings. I said, you can, I'll give you an imaginary five shillings and have an imaginary nail in, all right? Hmm. And that's when we fell. Da, 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 da. Cynthia Lennon. One night when we were lying in bed reading, I asked John what his book was. It was called Grapefruit and looked very short. Oh, something that weird artist woman sent me, he said. I didn't know you'd met her. John looked up. Yeah, I went to her exhibition. John Dunbar asked me. It was nutty. John Dunbar, ex-husband of Mick Jagger's girlfriend Marianne Faithful, was a friend of his who owned a small art gallery in central London, the Indica. It wasn't unusual for John Dunbar to invite friends to one of his exhibitions. I didn't think any more about it. I didn't know then that Yoko was beginning a determined pursuit of John. She wrote John many letters and cards over the next few months, but I knew nothing about them at the time, or that she had even come to our house looking for him several times. On those occasions, neither John nor I was at home. Whether John knew or not, I have no idea. What I did know was that John and I weren't as close as we had once been. In November... John, Paul, George, and Ringo had scarcely spent a day together since early September. Now they had decided to reunite and begin recording a new album. From November the 24th until the end of the year, they were back at the Abbey Road Studios. In the morning, we'd drive into Abbey Road in John's blacked-out Rolls Royce, fall out of the back of the car into the studio. At a studio in London, the Beatles have just come together for the first time in four months to record some songs. Recording Strawberry Fields Forever, When I'm 64, and Penny Lane. We were in this big white room that was um, very dirty. It hadn't been painted for years and years. And it had all this old sound baffles hanging down that was all dirty and broken. Not a very nice atmosphere. When you think of the songs that were made in that studio, number two, it's amazing because there was no atmosphere in there. We had to kind of just make the atmosphere ourselves. You know, the great thing about these studios in Abbey Road was that you're always bumping into people. Um, so Malcolm Sargent would look in at the session and sort of wave in his pinstripe suit and his carnation. Hello, boys. And George would say, so Malcolm would like to say hello. Hello, Mal. 
Hello, boys. It was all very that. Remember seeing Sir Tyrone Guthrie on the steps here, you know, the great man himself, you know. So it was always very like that. It was a joke, really. I mean, they had this toilet paper like lino that had EMI on every piece. And they had uh, the refrigerator had a padlock on it. So if you wanted a cup of tea, you'd have to, we'd have to break open the padlock on the fridge to get the milk out. EMI being this huge monster company, you know, when they bought the 8-track, the first 8-track in England, you know, they're so cheap they didn't buy the plug to plug it in. It's their first work together since the U.S. tour ended. The sessions are for Sergeant Pepper. The songwriting team thing will keep going on whatever happens, will it? Yeah, we'll probably carry on writing music forever, you know, <laughs> whatever else we're doing. Because you just can't stop, you, you know, you find yourself doing it whether you want to or not. But you think the tours, like the American tours and the English one, you know, the well, stands in England... You know, there must be a point where they don't work anymore because they're not to do with what we're doing, record-wise or film-wise. We went into the studio just before Christmas and recorded um, Strawberry Fields and When I'm 64 and Penny Lane, all round about the same time. And um, this was the beginning of the new album. And when we wanted to issue a single, Brian came and said, well, you know, we've, we've got to put one out because it's time for one. I said, well, I really wanted this for the album. He said, well, we've got to have something. Here's John from December 1966 at Abbey Road, working out the arrangement for his demo of Strawberry Fields Forever. No one I think is in my tree. I mean, it must be high It just sort of goes too quiet, though, doesn't it?
With Strawberry Fields, we did two recordings of this. The first time, we made a record with just the boys themselves, and it worked out pretty well, I thought, anyway. And John went away and listened to the lacquers that we cut of it. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. And he came back to me and said, George, he said, I don't think it's really what I had in mind when I first wrote it. And I had to admit, I, I said, well, you know, honestly, John, it has worked out rather heavier than I first thought when you sat and played it to me on an acoustic guitar. I thought it was going to be a little more uh, flowing than, than it has been. He said, well, that's the point. He said, I want to make it a little more smooth. Can you do a score for me and we'll do a new record? So I scored it for some cellos and for some trumpets and various things. And we made another record of Strawberry Fields Forever. And he went to Anderson to that. said, uh, mm, it's very much better. I like it much better. But it's still not right. There's a lot in the original recording that's, that's really better than this one. It's a pity we can't have the two together. He said, if we could take the beginning of one and the end of another, that'd be great. So I listened to them both, and I said, well, there's only one thing, John. To begin with, they're completely different tempos, and they're in two different keys. Apart from that, it'd be very easy to cut them together. So he looked at me and smiled, and he said, well, I'm sure you can fix it. And, of course, it's a terrible challenge. Well, by the grace of God and a bit of luck, I found out that by reducing the speed of one of the recordings and by speeding up the other, the tempo change accounted for the intonation change of half tone. So, in fact, I did cut the two recordings together. And the record you hear today is two separate recordings in two different keys uh, edited together. Let me take you down, because I'm going to strawberry The next song we did actually was When I'm 64, but that was uh, one that harked back quite a long way. Take two. get older losing my head many years from now will you still be sending me a valentine birthday greetings bottle of wine if i'd been out till quarter to three would you lock the door 
Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? have gone You can knit a sweater by the fireside Sunday mornings go for a ride Doing the garden, digging the weeds, who could ask for more Will you still need me Will you still feed me When I'm 64 Every summer we can rent a cottage in the Isle of Wight If it's not too dear I'll scream and save Grandchildren on your knee Vera, Chuck and Dave Who'll be doing? Send me a postcard, drop me a line Stating point of view Indicate precisely what you mean to say You're sincerely wasting away Give me your answer, fill in a form Mine forevermore Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64 one immediately after that was curiously allied to Strawberry Fields. It was Penny Lane. Penny Lane was a place that John knew about. So, you know, for me to just say I've got a song called Penny Lane, he knew exactly what I was doing. Similarly, Strawberry Fields, I knew about that from when I used to go and visit him when we were kids. Um, it was the place right opposite him where he used to uh, go and play in the garden kind of thing. So it was kind of a magical childhood place for him. And we transformed it into the sort of psychedelic dream. It's like everybody's magic place instead of just ours. We took them from being little localized things to made them more global. Yes, clapping on <clears throat> For a fish and finger pies Should I do that harmony? Boom, boom, boom do that you know if they suddenly decide that it needs it there like
On Sunday, November 27th, John appeared on the popular BBC Two TV series, Not Only But Also, which starred Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. John played the role of Dan, a smartly outfitted doorman at the trendy nightclub called Ad Lav, a spoof on the popular Ad Lib Club. John's brief role 
was to stand at the top of the steps of the underground men's toilet located at Broadwick Street in the Soho area of central London. This is London's most fashionable laboratory spot. Here, film stars rub shoulders with royalty in an atmosphere of cosmopolitan sophistication. <laughs> Good evening. Uh, excuse me, sir. Are you a member? I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm from American Television. I'm doing an interview downstairs. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. You must be a member to go in here. Would it help if I told you that I was the Duke and Duchess of Windsor? Oh, sorry, sir. I didn't recognize you, madam. <laughs> uh, well, actually, sir, there is a five-pound waiting list. I understand. That's one of the uh, blue ones. Right. But thank uh, you very much indeed. I love your you, Oxford sir. accent. Lovely. Follow your nose, sir. Thank you. And madam. <laughs> On December 10, 1966, Parlophone releases another album. It's called A Collection of Beatles Oldies. It's Christmas time again, and since there's no new product from the Fab Four, a predictable collection of oldies was hastily assembled, and it was all crammed into an inferior Carnaby Street-style cover. The only all-new track on the LP was Larry Williams' Bad Boy, which had been released in America in 1965. The end of the year is at hand, and the Beatle Maniacs must make do with Revolver and older records. Fan club members receive the annual Christmas cuts. Merry Christmas, America. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Oh, ho, Santa. Everywhere it's Christmas. Everywhere it's song. London. Merry! Oh. And New York. Turkey, Hong Kong. man in glasses conducting a small choir. Meanwhile, high in the Swiss Alps, two elderly Scotchmen munch on a rare cheese Wonderful stuff, this Agnes. Ah, it's wonderful stuff. I'm standing in the entrance to the main tent. Immediately behind me, the festivities have already begun. <laughs> Tell me, are you enjoying the wine? I am indeed, Your Highness. Well, the king seems to be enjoying himself tonight. You know 
At the same time as this, in the captain's mess on board HMS Tremendous, a toast is being proposed. To Her Majesty! To Her Majesty! Podgy the Bear and Jasper were huddled around the unlit fire in the centre of the room. There are no more matches left, Podgy, said Jasper. Then buy some, Jasper, old friend said Podgy. Make a list, and afterwards we'll go to the shop and buy matches and candles and buns. There's no more paper to write on, Podgy. No need to worry, Jasper. You keep saying to yourself matches, and I'll keep saying candles until we reach the shop. Then we won't need to write it down. We'll remember. We'll remember the buns, Podgy. We both will, Jasper. Matches. Candles. Matches. Candles. Matches. Candles. Matches. Candles. Matches. In the long dark corridors of Felpin Mansions, a door slams. And the shadowy figure of Count Balder appears. The Count is the eccentric son of Baron Landsberg, the inventor of the rack. He speaks. Guten Tag, meine Damen und Herren. Welcome to Felpin Mansions. Butler will show you to your rooms. Butler! Yes, sir. Tell the ladies and gentlemen to their rooms. Yes, sir. Come this way, please. Come in. May I come in? Come, come in, Count. May I? Oh, yes, come in. Ah, oh, thank you. I was wondering if you knew any of the songs from the good old days. Oh, my goodness. Yes, don't you worry on that score. Uh, I hear the baron likes, sir. I hear the baron likes the good old tunes. Yes, I do. So do I, Count. So do I. Well, they're all melody, aren't they? No, don't you worry. I'll play him this one. He liked this one. Is it? Listen to this one. Please don't bring your banjo back. I know where it's been. I wasn't hardly gone a day when it became the Yes, everywhere it's Christmas. Everywhere it's Christmas. Everywhere it's song. London, Paris, oh, and New York, Tokyo, Hong Kong. Oh, everywhere it's Christmas. And I'm off to join the chart. Everywhere is Christmas. At the end of every year. Oh, everywhere is Christmas. At the end of every year. Every word is true. 
As the year 1966 comes to a close, former Beatle tour members Tommy Rowe and the Righteous Brothers are among the year's biggest. Here we come, walk down the street. Four actors out of nowhere, making monkeys out of themselves, gaining sixth place in the year's top ten. The top of the pop placement goes to former Sergeant Barry Sadler and his Ballad of the Green Berets. The brave men of the Green Berets. Rumors of a Beatle breakup are in the English air as businessman Alan Klein says he's been approached by a third party on behalf of half the Beatles. In a moment, the Beatles take you down to Strawberry Fields, and Psychedelia slips in. On December 31st, 1966, Paul McCartney tells the New Music Express, Our whole outlook on life is changing, because our circumstances have changed our surroundings. By the time we came to make Sgt. Pepper, we were getting a lot more freedom, artistic freedom. So we started to uh, incorporate more uh, of the kind of crazy life that that we were living at the time into the music. Sitting in gardens looking at trees for, for years and years. Coming up in a moment, a summer of love British style. That year did take about 50 years to complete. And the Beatles recruit for Sergeant Pepper. To lead a better life I need my love to be here She doesn't know he's there I want her everywhere And if she's beside me I know I need never care But to love her is to need her everywhere Knowing that love is to share Each one believing that love never Watching her eyes and hoping I'm always there. I need her everywhere, and if she's beside me, I know I need never care. Little lover is to need her. Everywhere. 
information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally... We'll do an all-star We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once. That is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't (laughs) even lying.